skipping the normal ad today, here is something that's been in the works for over a year. It's the culmination of six different phone calls, five of which were recorded with my Nana, who's 90 years old as of last August, and I can't wait for you to meet her. I do want to make a disclaimer. Neither of us are medical professionals, and absolutely the information about MS since she was active in the community has changed. Please understand this is just a conversation between a grandmother and her grandson and is not meant to be taken as literal MS education, but just someone's experience who's dealt with it. Hope you enjoy. Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. So let me do my intro because because people don't know who we are right now. So they'll be starting the conversation there. So it'll be like, that's how we okay. introduce them to the conversation. And then I'll say, you know, I'll ask you a question and then we'll get into your story. Because I always start it with a, a shameless self-promotion or a humble brag. So what I want to have you do first is is say something about yourself that's like really amazing like something you want to brag about because and the only reason i do that is because usually people have to talk about their failures so i want them to feel good first before they have to feel bad but we don't have to do that but that's just how i've done every show so far oh okay just gonna talk if we keep the same format i'm saying if we just keep it's just that beginning just the beginning has a thing and then the rest of it can go however it is you know can i say can i say i'm a medical miracle yes you can say anything you want as long as it's true in your mind, uh, like as long as it's what you remember. I mean, you can also lie, but you don't want to lie. So my point is you can you can like use whatever creative language you want, you know. Well, I'll just start from when I, when I was born. I. But I got to do the intro, but I got to do the intro first. Okay, you do it. Okay, go ahead. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I have an extra special guest this week who is my grandmother, Nana. Hey there, Nana. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Ben. How are you doing? I am doing unbelievably well, and I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Oh, I'm delighted to do it. I would like to tell a lot of people my story because it's inspirational. Yeah, you have such an interesting story. I love it. So now you can start however you'd like. I was born in Tampa, Florida on August 5th. 1931. It was in the midst of the Depression. When I was born, I only weighed two and a half pounds. And back in those days, they didn't have incubators like they do today. And the doctors would get a shoebox, fill it with cotton batting and olive oil, and put it on the back of my grandmother's wood-burning stove. Because that's what we had for heat. Wow. So you were only two and a half pounds? Two and a half pounds, right. And I had all kinds of problems growing up. My first problem was, other than being two and a half pounds. Well, just to be, just to, just curious, how long were you in that shoebox? Well, probably until I reached five pounds, which, which I would say probably about five months. Wow, five months in a shoebox. 
Yeah, right. Well, they they changed the shoebox and everything. <laughs> they made me. But anyway, um, when I was uh, a year old, I only weighed 10 pounds. Wow. And, of course, I didn't have any toenails or fingernails or hair. Okay, hold on. Of course? Why of course? I That does not sound normal to me. <laughs> well, but when you're born two and a half pounds, it's pretty normal. Oh, okay. I got. I don't know a lot about babies when they're born, so I just assume uh, fingernails and toenails and hair. Uh, and there's no reason why you should know that. That's true. Okay. But anyway, uh, when I was a year old, I only weighed 10 pounds, and gradually I gained a little more. I think when I was four years old, I weighed about, I weighed, or I don't know how much I weighed. Then. It's okay. You don't need to say how much you weighed when you're four. You said you didn't have any fingernails or toenails, and then at age four, what happened? I I had already grown. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. I know it's confusing, but I just want to make sure that the people are able to follow the story. We We know what's happened up to a year. Now you can start from there if you want. And I was four years old. I grew some hair because my mother was tired of every, everybody saying, oh, isn't he a cute boy? So she put a ribbon on it so everybody would know it was a girl because it was hard to tell without any hair. <laughs> so you only had four pieces of hair? About four strands of hair. So kind of like a Charlie Brown or like a a, a very funny looking child and then how did she even attach a ribbon to four pieces of hair well it wasn't it wasn't easy but she did it probably taped it to him i don't know how she did it <laughs> anyway wanted them to know i was a little girl because i was a cute little red-headed girl and she wanted everybody to see that gotcha and you got to make sure you keep the phone at the same place because it seems like sometimes you're fading away I don't know if you're moving the phone away from your face sometimes. This is not easy, I can tell you. Well, I'll try, and I'm losing my voice. So go ahead. Just I will stop interrupting, and you can just, just go ahead. When I was about five or six, I had the whooping cough. And in those days, you had to keep a child in a dark room for a couple of weeks to get over it. And when I came out of the room... I was was cross-eyed. It affected my eyes, and I was cross-eyed. So what was the, who who told them to put you in a dark room for two weeks? I guess the doctor, or my grandmother had a medical journal. She looked in every time anybody had any symptoms, because nobody had any money to call a doctor or anything. She looked in her medical book and said, oh, this is what you do. Well, that's what she did. Gotcha. So, and it, so it said in that book, which was probably a giant book of like every problem that she knew of, <laughs> that anybody knew about. And then it would say, "Put him in a closet." Nope, she kept it, and I'm—I swear that's what she kept all of us alive with that book. Because we, you know, you have the usual things that nobody knew about for years later, like the chicken pox. They didn't have that. So later and we were vaccinated but anyway i'm up to i'm up to uh um so when you came out of the dark room you said you were cross-eyed i was cross-eyed right my one eye my left eye was 
<laughs> so I know it seems annoying and weird and like you probably think you're messing things up, but you're not. I just if I hear that I couldn't hear you, I want to make sure you say it again just to make sure we got it, you know? Oh, you can change everything. But we're <laughs> I know it seems ridiculous, but it's going to make sense because I'm going to do a lot of editing. But to right now, you probably think you're messing everything up or I'm messing things up, but this is fine. So, I, I mean, just every so often I have to chime in because it's supposed to be like an interview, you know? So, like, if I have a question, I'm going to maybe ask you, even though you want to get on to the next thing. Does that make sense? Oh, she gave me a lozenger. Oh, good. Um, so you came out of the closet and you were cross-eyed? It wasn't a closet. <laughs> okay, a dark room? A bedroom, a dark room. Okay, so I didn't know that if you stayed two weeks in a dark room, you would get cross-eyed. That's a, a thing? That was just probably because of what I got la later in life. Oh. Which is coming up later, my tale of woe. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, when I, I think I was eight, I had my appendix removed. And then when I was 10, I think I had my tonsils and adenoids out. I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks because they couldn't stop the bleeding. Wow, this sounds like a lot of problems to happen up until age 10. Oh, yeah. And there were many more after that. that that's why I'm a me medical miracle. I agree. When I was 16, I lost my eyesight overnight. Can you explain what that means? For So you woke up and you could not see? lost my eyesight and my grandmother my grandmother went to her medical book and she put some drops in my eyes and I was fine I didn't have any problems after that until I think I was 38 before I had before I found out I had multiple sclerosis well let's go back for just a second Nana because you don't need to just just only talk about medical things you know we can we don't have to skip like 20 years of your life i'm not correcting you i'm just saying like uh for the way this should work i think at age 16 what was the drops that she put in your eyes do you know well my grandfather had had a tire blow up uh and it affected his eyes and then he went to see a doctor and they get the doctor gave him a prescription for some eye drops. I don't know what kinds of eye drops, mm -hmm. but my eyesight came back overnight. It only happened overnight. It was fine the next day. Oh, wow! But later, well, when I was sixteen, I lost my balance and I was dizzy. Ask me a question. Sure. So you were sixteen years old. You got your eyesight back, thankfully, because of these drops that your grandfather had. And then at this point, at least this should have been during World War Two. So what, what did you what did you think about the whole thing that like the world is going to war? Well, I was was only 14 and I don't know if they told us too much about it. So you were only 14 when it ended, right? Right. And other than the fact that what uh, my Stepfather told me. I didn't too, know too much about it, although there was a, uh, a station, an Air Force station in Sarasota. Uh, didn't last for too long after the war. 
And so you said your stepfather was drafted, but he was doing mainly he had a, he had a really nice baritone voice and was doing singing and going to Air Force bases to do uh, like USO shows. Yeah, right. Right. Sort of like Bob Hope show. But it was only in Florida that he he did it mostly in Florida because that was where he was stationed. So after the war ended was when you lost your eyesight at age 16, right? Yes. And so what was that like? You went to bed one night and then in the morning you couldn't see? I woke up and, well, I, it, it's, it happened at night. I was at a movie and I couldn't see. And my sister, I was with my sister and she brought me back to my grandparents' house. And that's when my grandmother gave me the drops that her husband had gotten. They had helped him. They didn't do much with his eyesight, but it did help him a lot. And so did it Did it feel like you got all of your eyesight back? Like it was as if nothing had happened? I felt like I got it all back. Well, that must have felt lucky. When my, when my, of course, my parents were, they, they were in Sarasota at the time because we used to visit my grandparents in the summer and my father. So I, I got my eyesight back. I'm, I'm just wondering, you still had a crooked eye, right? So could you not see very well in general? Oh, I could see all right out of my right eye. But unfortunately, and we haven't gotten to that stage. I got MS, and it settled in my right eye, which was my good eye. So I'm not really sure how MS works in terms of, like, what do you mean by settle? Like, so MS is, is I know it's a, a disease, but it starts in a certain part of your body. Is that what you're saying? It starts in three different, several, several, several parts of your body. It can sit from your neck up. It can fit, affect you from your eyes down to through your stomach, or it can affect your your uh, legs. So it seems like you'd either have it in the head, the torso, or the legs. Right. The reason they call it multiple is because it hits multiple parts of your body, and it can happen to any part of your body. The worst case we ever saw was a 14-year-old girl that got it, and she could only blink her eyes. It was awful. But she, her, that happened to her when she was 14, and her mother took care of her until she died at 38. Wow. Something that happened. And there's no really way to predict it, huh? It's just something that randomly occurs? Oh, it happens. You can be looking in the mirror and... Close your eyes sometimes and you open them and you can't see. It's a weird thing. It affects the myelin sheath. Your central nervous system is at the base of your spine. And you have all these, uh, where all, all, all everything comes from the base of your spine. It's where it all generates from. And it goes to, like, if, if you tell your arm to move, it's supposed to, Go through your nervous system. That's what I was trying to think of, your nervous system. Gotcha, yeah. And it will tell your arm to move, or it will tell your your uh, knee to move, or your leg to move, but it's that's where it's generated. And multiple sclerosis, like, gets in the way and, and doesn't translate it right? Oh, it can happen anytime. And what you have around each one of these 
is a what they call a myelin sheath. It it's like a short circuit in, in your home. So your brain's telling your eyes to see, but but MS is getting in the way and and not letting them talk to each other. Right. Gotcha. So you at this point you didn't know you had MS, right? But you did have bad vision. Yes, and uh, I think when I went to see an ophthalmologist, he told me that the only two things that you can have your eyesight leave immediately or if you have MS or you have sunburned your cornea. And I had gone out on a yacht the night before, the day before for the weekends, and I thought maybe that was what had happened. But gotcha. the next morning, I woke up and I couldn't see. So what what happened? I mean, were you panicking when you when you couldn't see? I was panicking, and I kept thinking, "I'm not." You you read in the uh, encyclopedia what it is, and that you're going to uh, lose your uh, feelings. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. And then you're going to die. It's great. Look it up. And uh, so naturally, I'm thinking the worst. I'm not going to see my daughter uh, get married or my son get married or them graduate from high school. I just had all kinds of horrible visions. Which, anyway. How, how did you find out that you had MS? My neurologist knew I had it. Okay, so you're 38, and you went to go, I believe you said you went to go get your eye fixed, the left eye fixed, to be corrected. Is that when they found it? They, I went to the hospital, had all these tests taken, and the doctor, my, op, my neurologist, knew I had MS, but he didn't tell me. I waited a whole year. But this was a... Just to be clear, this was a different time of losing your eyesight. So you lost your eyesight at 16, then it came back, and then nothing happened with your eyesight until you were in your 30s? Yes, I was in my 30s. And then what happened then? How? So you lost your eyesight again? Yes. No, I only lost my eyesight that one time. Oh, okay. One time at 16 and one time at 30, I think I was 38. Wouldn't that be two times? <laughs> Well, it would be two times. Yeah, so why don't we just pretend like as if it was two times? Because it sounds like at 16, you lost your eyesight. And then later on in life, because I believe in your 30s, it wasn't it for two weeks that you lost your eyesight? Two weeks, I lost my eyesight. How did you lose your eyesight when you were in your 30s? I don't know. I just lost it because because I had MS. It was my MS that I had. But you didn't know that at the time. So, So like really like so... Can you just tell me the story of what happened leading up to that and then what happened, how they, what they did after that? Well, I don't know what led up to it. It just happened. Were you asleep and you woke up with no eyesight or did you lose it during the day or? I'd been out on a yacht the night before or the whole weekend, actually. And when I got off of the yacht, I was staggering and my husband helped me go upstairs went to bed, woke up the next morning, and I had lost my eyesight. I couldn't see it. It looked like I was looking into the sun, really bright, and I couldn't make out shadows or anything. 
So what, what? So you could kind of see like uh, that you couldn't see like it wasn't like it was completely black, but you couldn't see anything that was going on, just like kind of shadows. Yes, but it was real bright. And that lasted for how long? That was about two weeks. And then what? How did that get corrected? And gradually, over the two weeks, it gradually came back a little bit. Oh, so maybe you thought that it was just the that sunlight thing that. That caused it? I didn't know what caused it until the, the neurologist told me that it that I had MS. And that was when he only told me because he had to go overseas because he was he was in the, the he was in the service, but Okay. Um what did, why did he wait a year to tell you that you had MS if he so like he he fixed or your vision came back and then he found out you had MS and didn't tell you that? He didn't tell me for over a year, and the only reason he did was because he had been called back to service in Korea. It was the Korea? He told me because when I went with him to see him the first time, my mother is an absolute nervous wreck, mm-hmm. and he didn't feel like he could tell me that I how bad it was or that I had it. And my mother would really be so upset. So he thought it would be better to just not, uh, to just be, he's like, wow, this is some bad news and I just don't want to give it to these people. Well, because it's a nervous condition and your nerves affect everything in your body. And he thought it would make it worse if he told me. Okay. In fact, he gave me vulvar neuritis or something was what he said I had. But I knew all along it must be MS. Oh wow! So then, so then a year later or whatever, he told you without telling your mom. Yeah, well, I had gone that time without my mother or my husband, and that was when he told me that I really had MS. And what was your reaction to that? Well, I started crying, and I, I was still driving then. I got in the car and drove home. When I when I got home, I fixed myself a cup of tea, and I'm a very religious person, mm-hmm. and I I knew that God had some plan for me. About that time, my pastor came in because I had been teaching Sunday school before I lost my eyesight, mm-hmm. and he came to see me because he'd heard I I had lost my eyesight, and he said. What, what do you have? And I said, I just found out today I have multiple sclerosis. And I said, and God has always been in my corner, and he knows the path I'm to take, and I'm going to follow that path. And I know he'll keep, keep me in the right direction. And from that moment until this moment, he has. Um, up until that point in your life, did you know much about MS? I didn't know anything about it. And did your pastor know anything about MS? I don't think he knew much about it either. So you both were like, wow, I have this weird new thing that neither of us really understand. One of those diseases that you don't hear much about. And But you you knew God was in your side, so so you weren't too worried about the diagnosis? Oh, no, I was worried. But there wasn't anything I could do. I had it. And they and they told you you weren't going to be able to have kids either. Oh no, no! It, 
it had nothing. I thought I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't live long enough. Oh. The way they, they write it up in in the encyclopedia about what it is, uh, you think you're going to die. Horrible. Yeah, so you're like, I just got a death sentence. And sometimes it is. Yeah, right, especially after the executive director of the MS Society told you that you were just so much dead wood, what would you think? You would think you were going to live. Well, can you tell me? I didn't know he said that. So, what did what happened? He, the how did you talk to this person? He was the executive director of the Massachusetts Society for Multiple Sclerosis. And you went to him to ask advice. We had had a fundraiser, door to door canvassing for MS, and we had on, during that canvassing we had picked up a lot of names of MS patients their families. And uh, when we got ready to uh, turn the money over to the executive director, he came to my friend Gene's house and we gave him the money. And Gene said to him, do you think they're going to find a cure? When they're going to find a cure for MS? And he said, oh, they'll find a cure someday. But the people that have it will be just so much dead wood. I'm sitting there, and he knew I had it. And that's when Gene and I got together, and we formed an organization called the Multiple Sclerosis Service Organization. Because you realized that people were going through the same thing you were and realizing that they had this thing, and they were being told that there's that they're going to die, basically, and you thought there should be more information given to them about what, the reality is and what the possibilities are, right? And so many of these people were in nursing homes and the reason you go into a nursing home because your family, they've been taking care of you and it's hard for family members to come and see you. They might come on your birthday or on Easter or Christmas but the rest of the time, you're just forgotten. Yeah, and these can be young people you're talking about. Like nursing home, we usually think of old people. But if it's someone with MS who's an, a young person. Oh, it can be. It can be any It can be any time. Like I said, that girl, Diane Antigua was her name. She was only 14. It can be any time, anyone. It, mostly it's uh, female, so I think. Mm. And so... And so, like, at some point, some of these families realized they couldn't take care of the whatever relative they had that had MS, and so they'd put them in a nursing home instead? Yes, a lot of them did. What, some of them are still walking around. I was walking around. Nobody could even tell that I was any, there was anything wrong with me. Yeah, me too. Well, when I when I knew you, I mean, we will we're not going to fast forward yet. But I never knew there was. I mean, I knew you had MS, but to me, you just looked like a normal person who had nothing wrong with them. Right, and that's the way I looked until. Yeah, and I'm and to be clear, that you you were a normal person that had nothing wrong with you because it was in remission, right? It, yeah, for like forty years, I was in remission. So, you realized that you were a good person who could be an example of someone with MS who's not a 
debilitated person. So you could go tell people about the different types of how it can happen. And like some people are, are not that badly affected by it. Some people are very badly affected by it. Right. Right. And we went around and visit to visit MS patients and they could see me and I had it and it, that gave them more courage to go on, you know? Yeah. A lot of people, they wanted to give up. And that can be part of what actually ends up doing you in, right? Because you you never gave up, and you always thought you were good because you had God on your side. But if some people thought that they, you know, they just mentally gave up, uh, your body might not try as hard to fight it, right? Right. And, of course, then we have lateral sclerosis, which is the Lou Gehrig disease. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so ALS? Or it's a it's similar to multiple sclerosis. Basically, it's a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, of course. I know Pete Frades, who went it was in high school with me. He oh yeah right yeah. And the ice bucket challenge and everything. He was um, unfortunately he's passed away now. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean I remember seeing you know he was basically paralyzed. He had lateral sclerosis. Yeah, ALS, and 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 we, me, and you right now are talking as non-professionals, so there might be more information that we don't know uh, these yeah, right. days. But you know, this is at least our our my understanding and yours. But did Jean have MS, or was she just a friend who oh, no. wanted to help you? No, nope, she never. She had worked in. They came from uh, Red Bank, New Jersey, and Phil had been transferred. That's her husband had been transferred to uh with he worked for Bell Lab and they were uh connected with Varian Associates. That's when she moved up why she moved up here. But when she was in New Jersey, she had been uh worked with MS the MS Society down there as a uh canvasser for MS down in New Jersey. Uh, I just want to ask a question. So it sounds like uh basically back then you so similar to uh, do you know what the ice bucket challenge is have you heard of that oh yeah right and that, so that was a big money raising in fact we are very aware of Pete having it yeah so that was in fact, sean i think with him. yep he did and me and sean uh actually i was it was in my grade um sean was at one grade above me and so i was in a lot of classes with pete and but he was a sports guy so we weren't like friends or anything because he was a big baseball player I mean, not that yeah, we right. didn't get along, but just we were in different. I was a nerd. He was a jock. So uh, we were in classes together, but, you know, we weren't like uh, much of friends. And at the time, he didn't have ALS or wasn't diagnosed or anything. So um, that happened much later. But what I guess I'm trying to draw a parallel is that like the Ice Bucket Challenge was a way to bring awareness to ALS, which um, people and to raise money for that. So it seems like back in the day, you were kind of doing a version of that but there was no internet so you had to go door to door and tell people about it and then ask for money and then when the boston strangler came around killing people in boston women strangling them people would not open their doors anymore so we couldn't even get funding from that we had to rely a lot on people that knew ms or knew somebody that had it and would donate money were you scared when the Boston Strangler was around? Was that a scary time for you? It was a scary time for any female. In fact, 
we lived in Newbury at the time, and these two guys knocked on the door, and I I looked out, and one of them looked like the, the picture that was in the globe of the Boston Strangler. So I called my next-door neighbor and said to her, don't let him in, don't let him in. So for people who don't know, and I, I wasn't around that back then either, so what can you explain who the Boston Strangler was or what he did or what, like, happened? He strangled women, and I think it was about 10 or 11 women he strangled in Boston. Would, by some reason, get them to open the door. I don't know anybody that would, but they wouldn't after they'd heard one or two of them had been strangled. But you couldn't raise any money going door to door because people wouldn't open the door. Gotcha. Okay. So did you keep going with the organization, just trying to raise money in different ways? Yes, we did. We tried to, and uh, but it was mostly through donations of people. And uh, we had these socials every Friday night at St. Peter's Church in Beverly for MS patients. And some of them would come from nursing homes. And I can remember uh, Gordon, the president of Gordon Foods, he picked up this one girl at a nursing home and took her to the social and picked her up after afterwards and took her back to her uh, where she was in a nursing home. It was just wonderful. We had policemen doing it, firemen doing it. They were just terrific. And we got all kinds of donations of people, wise potato chips. The women of the church made uh, cupcakes and all kinds of things for us. And everything was donated. We had... Uh, Christmas parties for the kids of the MS patients and Parker Brothers games. They were over in Salem at the time. They donated uh, games, all kinds of games, and uh, Wise Potato Chip Company. Sorry to interrupt, but so Parker Brothers in Salem, that was where they did the Ouija board. Yeah, right. The first Ouija board. And that's why Salem and the, the Ouija board, uh, I mean, that's what I think it's coming from Salem gave some credibility yeah. to it being a, a supernatural thing. But I just wanted to let you know um, that we're in March right now and March is MS Awareness Month. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, yes, I do know that. I do know that. So I just wanted to mention that for the listeners because uh, we're in March and I'm releasing it tomorrow. So just to, to spread a little bit more awareness. But what was the name of the organization that you started? Is it still going on today? No, it's not going on today. We had to disband in 1980 because we ran out of funds, first of all. And we couldn't get any help from March of Dimes because we were like a stab in the heart of National MS Society because they fought us every step of the way because we were... Uh, getting a lot of money they thought they might should have been getting. Yeah, because I just looked up two, like, I just looked up right now on the internet, and it seemed like I found two. I found the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, which is the one you just said was actually trying to, to get in your way because they thought you were a competitor. Yes, right. You were a thorn in their side. But they and then I also see there's something called the Multiple Sclerosis Association of America. Yep. Is that a good one? 
I'm, I'm saying if I want to tell people to donate to something, do you know one that, that you would support? We had a charter. We had a charter, and it's no longer in existence, but we had a charter from the state. The district attorney, I think, gave it to us. We went into Boston and got it, and uh, we were always a thorn in their their side, the National Amnesty Society. And after we disbanded, after we disbanded, because the MS patients had done so, we had done so much for the MS patients, they insisted that the National do the same thing. Why can't they do the same thing as the small other? Oh, so it wasn't that you were taking money and it was like a competition. It was more like you were providing better services and they were upset that you had, they had to match those services. Right. It's true. And they formed their own organization and it was called the Adams, A-T-O-M-S, Adams Association to Overcome Multiple Sclerosis. Okay, I just looked that up. It says it's the, yep, Association to Overcome Multiple Sclerosis. It says it's served the MS community in Oklahoma City since 1954, but apparently it also spread to Boston later. All over. In fact, uh, we were down at Disney World, and we met this uh, man from England, and uh, his wife went to one of their socials, Adams, over in England, this little small community. Wow. So all these random groups were kind of popping up because they were realizing that people needed to know about MS and and different groups kind of took their own different methods of how to spread awareness. Right. And we started it all. I can tell you. How old or what year was it when you started? We started in 1969 and we had to disband in 1980. So 19, yeah, whole 70s. So while while you did get an early start, it seems like the Adams group, it was 1954, but that was in Oklahoma City. So maybe you were just separately doing it and didn't know about each other um, and, and just trying to figure out how to. Well, I think they probably got they probably got it uh, from there for the uh, the one in New Jersey, one in Redback, New Jersey, and established the same thing because that's what Jean had been working on. She was in Red Bank, New Jersey. Mm, I see. Okay. And so was there, for all of these groups, was it, because I feel like if you were in any of these associations, you would think that anybody else who's also trying to raise awareness and money, wouldn't it be like a team thing where you're all on the same team rather than competitors? Well, it, we we did do that. But you're saying the National Multiple Sclerosis Society did not do that. We didn't feel like we were part of them because they didn't show any indication that they really wanted to be us to be part of them. Mm, okay, gotcha. So that made it difficult for you, and then you had difficulty keeping up the funding, and you had to disband in the 80s? Right, uh, probably 1979, I think. Was. Now, were you... Were you- upset about that how how difficult was this for you try, trying to create an organization oh yeah because such good wonderful friends in fact I, I i've lost all of them i'm i'm 90 years old and they've all long since died Most, not just the ms patients but friends of mine and of course a lot of the ms patients it's amazing because 
most people, I mean, I'm not sure what the stats are, but uh, living to 90, by the way, congratulations, is very impressive. So I bet when considering you've had MS uh, and you found out when you were in your 30s. I only weighed two and a half pounds. Don't forget that. Yep. And I, yeah. And at that point, obviously, you didn't know. But uh, when you found out in your 30s, uh, did you think you would live to 90? Well, I hope I was. But I told you I was very religious. And somebody up there told me I was going to live to be 105, so I still have 15 more years to go. Well, that's awesome. So is that via prayer that you um, felt that message? My, it's the prayers that I give every night. That's great. I mean, I meant like I've never um, gotten a message from uh, or from God about uh, when I'm going to live to. So I'm just curious how that felt or, or what. I didn't say I didn't say. I get that I give, he's giving me messages. It's just that he's always been there for me. Yeah, but you said 105, so I'm curious just where that number come from. Somebody, I don't know who it was, told me. You can say God, it could say Juju, you could say. Mm -hmm. Get a vision. Yeah, it, it was, it was not a vision necessarily. It was in my mind's eye. Mm hmm. So you felt God was talking to you and, and saying, you can make it. And not only can you, can you make it, you're going to live to 105, which is a, a very old age, especially considering back then, probably not many people made it that, that old. Oh, no, that's not the case. All of my grandparents lived to be late in their 90s. Oh, wow. So you must have good genes. I come from a long, I come from, tell everybody, I come from a long line of long livers. Well, I hope that extends to me. I hope it does, too. You've got it in the family. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, exactly. So um, who knows? Uh, maybe maybe I'll get to 105. I hope so. And I hope I'm going to be there with you. <laughs> yeah, you'll get to 155 or something. <laughs> who knows? Uh, who knows? I might be the miracle woman to end all miracles. Maybe you'll never. Maybe you're Maybe you're immortal. Maybe. Who knows? If anyone deserves it, I'd say it's you. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's been fun. Absolutely. So your MS, when you were told you were, you were you had MS, it was not in remission, or how do they know you have it if it's in remission? Uh, because the doctor showed me on my uh, X-rays where it was, where the myelin myelin sheath had been worn away. Mm. And oh, I have it because I saw it. So I wonder if uh, between age 16 and when you were in your 30s, did they not, maybe that's when the technology developed to even find that? I don't have any idea. I don't know when it was. I don't know anything about that. But for the general public, most people didn't know about it. It was, it was one of those diseases that people, you'd say, Oh, I remember. That's MD, right? Muscular dystrophy. It's not. It's MS. We even we even got checks that was made out for um, multiple multiple dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy, right? And uh, we would send them back right back to the. Yep. We wouldn't keep them, but they they didn't know the difference between MS and MD. Yeah, even me growing up. Uh, I just thought Lou Gehrig's disease was like he had it, only him had it. And then it was like a thing that wasn't 
I didn't know what ALS was. So I think like, you know, a lot of people just, uh, if you're not, if you don't know anybody who has something, it's difficult to know when, when there's not that much information. So it was great that you were going around spreading information about not only what it is, but like the varieties of, of things that can happen when you have it. It can hit you anywhere you have a nerve all over your body. Wow. That well, so where have you been since you got diagnosed were you just worried the whole time that it would snap into uh existence or not start you know i don't know what the opposite of remission is but it would kick in i be honest with you i never even think think about it i never do now just to give me perspective because i would think about it all the time so how what it was just because you thought i never do and anybody can tell you i'm in a bed, I'm an invalid, you could say, but I really never think about MS. I really don't. Well, you've only been in, in uh, confined to a bed for what two years now, I think. About three. Or three, but up until then, you were pretty self-sufficient. And... Oh yeah, I was able to take care. I used to go to Florida every year for two or three months. Yeah, so even up to like age eighty-six or eighty-seven, you were just in. I mean, you couldn't really tell that anything was. You didn't have any kind of like a, a visible disease. Oh, I, I had to uh, use the walker or a cane at the, at the start of the last. Well, actually, I, I got uh, three blood clots in my lungs is what I hit that my MS. And that's why I'm in the bed because it hit me. Oh, okay. So can you tell me the blood clot thing? Because I'm not sure I know that full story. I had three blood clots in my lungs, and because I don't drink, I don't smoke, uh, the doctor was able to take care of it without too much medication. They, uh, I had four, and my wonderful daughter, Diana, your, your Yaya, mm-hmm. had to stick these four needles in my stomach. I don't know how she did it, but she's a... She's a wonder. Oh, wow. She's my angel. Yeah, and she takes care of you now, right? Yes, she does. She takes wonderful care of me. Wonderful. And now now that she's retired, you guys get to spend a lot of time together. Actually, I'm going to give her credit for helping um, set up the Zoom call because I know it was difficult to uh, to arrange this. Right. And, of course, I have Michael, my son-in-law, who's terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah my, uh, her, her husband. Right. And your dad is on and off. He's got your, your stepmother. She's got uh, COPD, and she's on a uh, osculin. Yeah, so he's 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 taking care of his wife, and or he at least he has to to take more care of her. But while he's doing that, yeah, um, your daughter Diana is taking care of you. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And she does a lot for you, right? Everything. So, can we give her a little bit of a sh- of a of a shout out? Say how amazing she is and and how much you appreciate her. Maybe. Oh yeah, she knows only too well how much I appreciate her. Well, I don't know if the listeners know. What? Like, can you tell me, uh, as if I'm a listener, how much you appreciate her? Oh, I I appreciate her more than you can know. I wouldn't be here if I'd gone into a nursing home. I'm not saying anything against nursing homes, but mm-hmm. you don't get the care you, that my daughter would get would have given me. Yeah. So if you remember when I was in high school, I was president of the nursing home club 
And I agree. Uh, once you, once you're in a nursing home, I mean, even if it's a great nursing home, um, just the loneliness and the fact that you are distanced from your family and and really feel kind of you know discarded by society um that can that can make it hard to mentally want to keep going on oh yeah right but i'm stimulated all the time i have lived to see uh four great grandsons and one great granddaughter wow that's awesome not many people can say that yeah and it's crazy to think of that if if you and your shoebox method or their shoebox method. If, if uh, for some reason that didn't work out, my aunt, my dad, myself, my cousins, their kids, uh, none of us would be here. Nope, they wouldn't have been because I wouldn't have been here and you wouldn't have known I was even there. <laughs> I know. And so, and even, even forget the shoebox, all the other things that happened up until you had, a, had the kids uh, if any of those things didn't go the right way, I wouldn't be here. Oh, that's right. You wouldn't. So I'm very thankful that you kept going and di- didn't give up hope. I did. I wanted to marry that. I wanted to marry Benjamin Courier. Yes. So I am the fourth and my grandfather, who I never met and who I believe died when my father was 12. Um, he was uh quite a lot older than you when you met is that right that's right 31 years older and what was that uh, what was the age difference okay 31 years and you were how old i was 22 i think and he was then 53 he would and you met him and was that strange to have such a large i mean he the difference between your ages you're you hadn't lived as much life as the difference between the two of you right no, my mother was younger than him, and he. <laughs> so was was that weird for society, or was that normal back then? I couldn't care less because I love the guy. Oh, I know. I meant, but just were people? Did you did people like um, accept it, or was it a? Did people? I know you don't care if people had a problem with it, but did people have a problem with it? Well, they thought always thought I was his granddaughter, but that didn't bother me. It didn't bother. Gotcha. But it, was it a typical thing back then for older men to be with younger women or is that or is that a, a rare occurrence? Oh, that, oh, that that happens a lot. And vice versa. Oh, OK. Because these days it doesn't happen as much or at least you don't hear about it as much. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because I think it's more taboo or like less less socially acceptable. I'm not saying what you did was wrong. I'm just saying back then it seems like it was more normal or at least like uh you know something that might happen more often these days people might judge people more for that right i probably would i couldn't have cared less i'm very happy you did it because i'm here because of it so i'm very pro that relationship i don't care if society has a problem with it because i wouldn't be here unless you did it you know unless you married him and what what about it was no i know that what about him? None of you would be here. So I don't know much about him, but you just said you loved him so much. Can you tell me what what made him so appealing to you, or what what um like how well, that relationship I think, start? I think he, in the beginning, I think I thought he was like a father figure mm-hmm. because I had a stepfather and I had didn't see my father much, and he wasn't a father really. 
Yeah, and it seemed like he was like an established uh, person who knew what they were doing, and and he was a successful businessman, I believe, at the time. Yeah, my real father. No, I'm talking about he Benjamin was... Benjamin the second, my grandfather. Yeah, well, he had his own business. Yeah, so you met him, and you're like, wow, this this guy's got his own business, and he's got his stuff together. And do you know what? Never entered my mind at all. Never even thought. Ever. You mean you didn't care about the money? I didn't care about it because I don't think he had a hell of a lot. <laughs> well, I don't know because I don't. I wasn't there. Yep, his family did. Yeah, I wasn't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was there then, but yeah, but he didn't. He have a business where he was selling. No, he came from a very wealthy. His family were. Oh, okay. Very wealthy. Well, he went to Harvard, right? And he was in the Hasty Puddings Club. Which is an actor's thing. Right. No, he did. Graduated in 1922. Wow. So he graduated Harvard nine years before you were born? Yes, apparently. <laughs> it's funny how things like that happened, you know? And he had many wives before. <laughs> I know. When you start putting it in numbers, then I start thinking. Sorry. Go ahead. But I thought that was going to be another story. It's okay. We can, I mean, I'm going to edit these things together and stuff. So meaning it doesn't have to be, no one can, no one knows what the stories are going to be, you know? So, so like if we touch on something interesting, we might as well just dive into it just for a little bit. So, okay. That's fine. So I'm wondering, so like when you, so he came from a wealthy family. I know that from the story of uh, Emily, the great, great, great grandmother, I'm not sure what she is to me great 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 grandmother but whatever it was uh he i don't know what she is i think she's great well he would he would have been your grandfather mm -hmm. and she would have been your great grandmother okay so that was his mother is emily yeah emily's mother emily okay. is your father's mother and then in that story she says that alexander graham bell came up to my grandfather and asked him if if he could use his lab and borrow some money to develop something called the telephone. And what did he say? He said he couldn't do that because he had a big family to take care of. And he didn't think it was going to work. And uh, would we say that was a good idea? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be here unless he said no, but I feel like that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> It was definitely that. It was definitely that. So when the telephone came out, did you say, did you think, oh, man, we could have been involved with this? Well, I think your grandfather had a lot to do money into it. Oh, okay. Grandfather Courier. The second. It would have been your great-grandfather. Oh. You know, I lose track of this. I'm telling you. It's confusing to me. I understand. I know. I'm, I know. Uh, I, I don't even know. And I'm the fourth. So <laughs> it's like it's confusing to me. But I know. So like uh, the main one we're talking, your husband was Benjamin the second. I'm the fourth. So his father must have been the first. Right. 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 But they were already wealthy and he decided to go do his own thing, selling businesses and stuff like that. Yes. Well, that's what he he first of all. During the war, he worked for the Plunkett Chemical Company. Oh, what do they do? And they they cleaned uh, bathrooms and uh, laboratories and service stations. 
In fact, your grandfather, for his company, he made more business for them than they had made in 50 years. And he was only worked two years because he was a wonderful salesman. He could sell an icebox to an Eskimo. Well, look, he sold me. Yeah. I think I think we would both agree that that is not a great salesman because you shouldn't be selling people things they don't need. But to your point, he was very convincing and able to get people to do things. I mean, like meaning he was uh, he was a good salesman. I I mean, I'm saying uh, I wouldn't want to sell an icebox to an Eskimo because I know they don't need it and I'm I'm wasting their money. But you're saying he was so good at convincing people that he could. He could even do that. And so like he could he could find new ways of getting sales that the companies couldn't, right? He did that when the war was on. Then after the war. Which war? Second World War. Okay. All right. Um, after the Second World War, he started selling businesses and he sold a great many businesses. So if someone had a business that they wanted to get rid of, he would then find someone to buy the business? Right. Back the Playtex nurser. And Playtex is everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Diana was the first one. It was uh, not. It was called No Burp. This and Bruce Maxwell. He uh, invented it. It was a way to serve a baby a bottle without him getting burped. It was a way to burp the bottle before the baby had it. Anyway, your aunt uh, Diana. She was the first baby to use it, and I didn't like it, so we didn't get involved in it. And it's too bad because Place Tech's nurser bought him out and came up with a better system. Yeah, it sounds like nowadays they're using something called Playtex drop-ins. Yeah, it's real simple today, but it wasn't back then. And so she was one of the te- tester babies for for that pro- that product. Yeah, it just so happened he was selling, trying to sell it. Mm. And Diana, I, I had Diana. He had Diana for a baby. We used it. He used it on her, and I was the one that said I don't like it really because it didn't seem to take care of what it was supposed to take care of. Was no burping because she continued to burp. <laughs> Well, she was the tester baby, so they were like, well, we don't know if this will work, but we'll try it. And then they must have like tweaked it so it did work. Yeah, well, they did. They probably bought him out, or I don't know what how they did that in. Okay. I wasn't privy to that. And so, uh, yeah. And how did um, how did your relationship end? And, and how many wives did he have before you met him? He had two, two that I know of. He said he was married after we got a divorce a couple of times. He was, uh, I told you he was a wonderful salesman. (laughs) Even with (laughs) selling himself to women as as well. Yeah, right, right. I got squeezed in there, but thank God I did because I wouldn't have had you and Diana. Absolutely. So, but when you did, when you. Danny and Chris and Sean and, and. Of course. Everybody and Sophia and William and Harrison and Henry mm-hmm. wouldn't have had any of them. And so, but when you when you two split up, what was the reasoning or what happened? How did um how did that happen? Oh, he he could not accept the fact that he had little kids running around. Well, he was fifty, 
at that time, 55 when Diana was born. So he didn't have kids with any of the other wives? Just one, Judy. And I met her probably at the same time I met him. And would you believe she's 84 now, and we still talk on the phone every week. (laughs) I did not know that. But also, I've met her uh, myself, and also me and you talk on the phone every week, every Sunday. That's right, we do. And I look forward to it every Sunday. Yes, every Sunday. And Sean, who's my oldest grandson, he's a postman, and he talks to me every night on his way home from work. Wow, that's really great. Sean is uh, not only taking care of his own kids that he has now, but also finds enough time to, to call you every night. Yep, he calls me every night. I didn't know I was um, slacking, I guess. <laughs> yep. And you call me every Sunday. You call me every Sunday, and it's wonderful. I thought once a week was was good, uh, but Sean is crushing it. I think it's terrific. Well, maybe I'll have to call twice a week now. Well, Sean's local. Sean is okay. You could call me every night. <laughs> My phone is right next to me. You know, I never get tired of talking. Unfortunately, uh, I already do so many things to distract myself that that I would never get anything done. I think, but because we could talk forever, we could. And I love talking with you. All you have to do is ask me. And I love that this is going to exist forever because a lot of our conversations, I mean, obviously we don't record our conversations uh, when we talk on Sundays. So it's nice that we have some of this that will live on forever. Even when I'm, I mean, hopefully not here, it'll still exist in some form potentially. Well, I hope so. Because, you know, these things are important. It's, it's, It's important to realize that like you saw basically no medicine or like not no medicine, but like very basic and misunderstood medicine times. And then now we have like um, robots that are calculating like probability of, of, you know, medical problems and stuff. Like it's gone so far the other direction from when you were born that it's, it's just crazy that the amount of stuff that's happened in just your lifetime. Oh, I know fantastic everything that's happened in the last 100 years 90 years i've lived through it yeah and weren't you one of the first women to go to northeastern for computer engineering or something well, I like that did. i went to a northeastern uh function functional wiring principles of ibm machines that was because they didn't even call them computers back then right it was like a punch card thing or was it something else yeah right in fact, uh, I was hired for a job, and uh, another person had the same job. One was for telephone operator. The other one was going through this program. And I, because my grade was a little bit higher than hers, they put me into that, and I loved it. Oh, wow. So, like, she would be doing the switchboard thing, right, where you're taking a uh, – they get a call, and then they unplug it and plug it in and all that stuff, right? Oh, yeah, right, right. And you were doing the next thing, right? And I went in the accounting department doing. Computers. But like you were doing something even more advanced than the switchboard thing, like the next iteration of technology. Yeah, right. Not that I necessarily got more money. I don't. I probably did. 
No, but you got to see like the first um, computer. Like right now, we everybody who's listening to this is listening magically through the fact that they can get it through the air or whatever. Like it's crazy, weird magic that technology exists now. But back when you were interacting with it, it was it was very different. So like, what was? What, can you tell me what it was like to do those things? Well, you just punched it up. Like if you were saying a sentence, you'd punch it up. It, would be like a punch. So, like for example, you you're trying to do a calculation, right? And and then you would put it you would put it on on a collator, and it would get it all together. We we uh, sold microwave tubes, the company I work for, and they would put all the the companies the microwave. Mm-hmm. There were different uh, sizes, different amps, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they would be put in different piles. It was just the the beginning of microwave is what it was. Well, that's crazy because uh, my understanding, and you can tell me if I'm right, like, but before that, and I think this might have been in the 40s and 50s, what would happen is basically you'd have punch cards and, and you'd have something where you'd have like, I don't know, the number nine on a card and then you'd have the number four on a card and you'd put both of those in and to a multiplication thing and it would spit out a new card that gave you the multiplication of the two and then you might take that next card and put it into another calculation is that right right so it was very basic very basic but that's how we started and i mean like just to be clear like it that even though it sounds weird and basic uh was the start of how we got to where we're at now with computers yeah right yep it was so did you feel like you were on the cutting edge of technology at the time yep i was believe it or not wasn't that something didn't think about yeah and now and now you're on the cutting edge of technology right now because zoom that we're talking on right now is unbelievable i mean i remember when i was growing up in the I mean, so I was born in 85, but growing up in the 90s, I would be like picturing the future when we would have video phone calls, but that didn't exist yet because, you know, this is all just uh, like in basically sci-fi stuff. You know, it wasn't real yet. We still had handheld or like landline phones only, you know, so there was barely even like cell phones or car phones or whatever. So like I was like, oh, I wonder if we'll ever get video phones at some point or whatever like you know be able to talk video wise but now it's so crazy that we can talk to like a hundred people on video at the same time all at once instantly it's insane or you can see their pictures we on uh thanksgiving and sometimes christmas we'd get the whole family together on this zoom thing and we'd see all of them and talk with them it's amazing it's amazing yeah isn't it crazy that you that before it was like uh, weird index card punch things, and now, and now I know. Since then, in your lifetime, it's uh, it's advanced to wireless, which is nuts to me. It's just in the air and and instant. Like me and you are talking instantaneously, but you can do that also with any like a bunch of different people. We can have people from Australia and wherever, and we're all instantly talking to each other. That's just insane based on what you knew when you were a kid. So like, did you ever think we'd have anything like this type of stuff? I've never, ever, ever. But I'm glad I've lived to see it and hear it. What did you think? So like, let's pretend when you when you were in, when you're doing the computer stuff with the uh, the microwave thing, like, well, at that point, what was your vision of the future of technology? Like the Jetsons? 
Jetsons? I guess. No, I was a movie buff. I love the movies. Well, what did you think would be like? So, like, if you go back, let's pretend you're you're in that um, computer time where you were working on the the computer stuff. Like, what were you thinking the future was going to be like? I never gave it a thought, Betty. Just just a second. Really? Just a second. Okay. I had to scratch my nose. <laughs> That's fine, because I think now, what is the future going to be like? And I have no idea, of course, but I mean, I'm blown away by everything that happens. And I mean, all the stuff I've seen and I've, I've lived much less time than you have. So for you to see all those changes, how hard was it to adapt to the changes in technology? Well, I don't know. I was in the drapery business. I wasn't involved too much in any of that. Well, I mean, even like, um, you know, as as new technology learning. I'm learning more now than I ever knew. That's true. So, but like as new technology came out, cell phones and stuff like that, did you find it difficult to, uh, to keep up with things? I mean, now it's very difficult because things change so quickly, but when you were, you know, sixties or earlier, like, was it relatively easy to keep up with how technology changed? Uh, it, it got, it got easier as time went by. Cause they weren't too complicated. It was like a TV would, I mean, TV was the thing that you saw come into existence, right? I mean, when you were a kid, there was no color TV, for example. Oh, no. Oh, no. In fact, the first... So when that came out, what would you... Go ahead. Tell your story. Whatever you're going to say. First television, we color television we saw was one of the vice presidents of our company. He got the first one, and we used to go over to his cellar and watch it at night. It was the first color television. And what were your thoughts about that? Were you blown away? But the first, the first black and white television we didn't see until 1950, around this area. Wow. So okay. So you were listening to radio programs, I guess. Oh yeah, Inner Sanctum. Only the shadow knows. <laughs> Can you tell me some I'm stuff? Because I don't know any of this. So like, what was it like pre-TV, pre-black and white? Well, we watched. We listened to the radio. It was all. It was the radio. And before the radio, I don't know what I don't know what it was before the radio. Books, right? Books. Oh, yeah. I was an avid reader, too. Which is with my eyesight now. I love the audio. Audio. Yeah. I've read on the auto. I think I've read about thirty or forty books on Audible. Yep. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Most of John Grissom. I love John Grissom. Most of his books I've read, or they've had had them read to me. Yeah, of course. I, I actually, uh, so I, despite being smart or what you would definitely call smart, I can't read a book for the life of me. I have to listen to it on audio because my ADHD uh, makes it so I can't really read a book right. Like I'll I'll read a whole page. What is this H-A? What is that? So. Me and you haven't really talked about this because, you know, just like people don't know about MS when you were growing up, ADHD is kind of a new thing in at least the time that I've lived, you know? So my thing that I'm spreading awareness in is not MS. It would be ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. But what it means is there are a lot of people and there's different versions of it. So just to be clear and and this all changes because just like with MS, you know, people were learning new things, right? So right. 
and you didn't know I have this because I didn't, I just haven't talked to you about it because I don't spread awareness as well, I guess, to you as I, as I should. But what it is, is it makes it so that um, it's difficult to focus on certain things or you can get easily distracted or you have what's called. So there's, there's what I believe is two, I think there's actually three types. So one is uh, inattentive, one is hyperactive. And then there's a third one, which would be some sort of a combination of the two. And now I'm not a professional. I don't know. I'm just saying what I know from based on my experiences and what I've heard from other people in the field. You gone to the doctor about it? Yes, I have medication. I take medication for it and um, and it helps me to focus. I mean, I have to take it every day. So they've developed medications to help with it. And what it basically does is just helps you focus on things. It doesn't tell you what to focus on so I can focus on some that I shouldn't and do a bunch of stuff, you know, like spend forever. For example, this podcast started just randomly because I wanted to do it. And then this is basically like a, a, a radio show nowadays, you know, like back when you were listening to the radio and they were doing stuff pre black and white. This is like today's version of radio because people don't really listen to it in their cars anymore. They're using their cell phones and instead of radio shows like the mystery theater or whatever you'd listen to, or, or like, you know, people doing pl like plays on the radio, right? Is that what you'd listen to that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. Certain uh, things we'd listen to every, we had programs on the radio, just like they have on TV today. And sometimes it'd be like mystery things like where they'd talk about a detective, like solving a thing, right? right. Oh yeah. Right. And it would continue on to the next night. It's like soap operas. Yeah. And so like people nowadays, so like my podcast is more about interviewing people about their lives and stuff, but other people talk about like true crime stuff and like would talk about like, for example, the Boston Strangler, like we talked about, but they would do a whole episode about like all that and what happened with it. But that's just not the format of my show. But basically what we're doing right now is like a radio show because all this is, is audio right now, you know? Right. Right. And I can't talk to you. Penny. Yep. Hello. Yes. I can't talk to you much longer because my phone is dying. Okay. So, so how about this? There's two things. There's just two last questions that I ask everybody. So I just want to ask you those two questions. It's how I end every show. Okay. Okay. So being a guest on my show, you get a get out of fail free card. Do you remember Monopoly and the get out of jail free card? Oh yeah. Right. Right. So I'm giving you a card. Pretend I'm handing you a card. That's a get out of fail free card. And let's pretend you're younger or you can go back in time. Is there something that you would have pursued if you knew you couldn't fail? Like, is there something like maybe you wanted to be an actress or something else like that you would use a card for if you knew you couldn't fail and you would have done, but you maybe avoided because of how much failure would have been involved? I think that was being an actress. I think that was the most important thing. Well, I saw some pictures of you when you were younger, it seemed like you were quite attractive. Did you actually try to be an actress? Did you pursue it at all? Well, I did a lot of it at school. I was in school. In plays? And I was given a scholarship at uh, John Carradine's studio in Boston. This is this has been thousands of years ago. <laughs> and Benny, I'm going to die on you. I'm still buzzing. I understand. Yep. So, um, uh, yeah, but I can still hear you, so we'll just keep going. So what is the next thing you're going to fail at until you figure it out? Is there anything that you're going to try to do? I'm going to try to live 
to see my first great-granddaughter get married. How does that sound? That sounds great. And her name is Sophia. That sounds amazing. I love that. And I I live to see you getting married and have kids. Well, who knows about that? But I hope you at least get to see me succeed in whatever way makes sense. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons, plus it comes along with my master workbook, which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.